Well, if you brought your Bibles tonight, and I hope that you have, turn with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 18. Um, honestly, to get everything that is happening here and going on, you probably need to read all of chapter 18 and 19. Um, and, and really there's some more as you go into chapter 20, but 18 and 19 really is where the whole story, and you want to know more about this, that's probably where you need to go to. But I want to read to you a portion of this starting in verse 16 of chapter 18. So we'll start there and read for a little bit, uh, and then we'll go to the Lord together in a word of prayer, and then I'll just try to share with him some thoughts that God has, uh, uh, has given me uh, for tonight. Genesis chapter 18, starting at verse 16, says, And the men rose up from thence and looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him. Can I stop for just a second? This hadn't got to do with my sermon, but I want you to recognize when it says that all nations shall be blessed in him, you know what it's talking about, right? It's from him that Christ will come. That is how all nations will be blessed. All right, let's go on. Verse 19. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, and the Lord may bring upon Abraham uh, that which he has spoken of him. And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is come unto me. And if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. Now, can I stop there for a second? The Bible starts out, if you go back and read earlier, starting in maybe the beginning of chapter 18, it tells us the three angels have come in, in a, in, come to Abraham. But, of course, Abraham wouldn't have known that at the very first. Uh, I think he begins to figure that out later. But anyways, when we get here, right, they've come. They have announced that, uh, or the Lord has announced, that Sarah will conceive, that he'll come back next year at this same season, and, and, and Sarah will conceive and have a child. And remember, she laughs at herself, how, saying, how can a woman as old as I am, right, with a husband as old as he is, how in the world are we going to have a kid? That's crazy. That's impossible. And remember, right, Sarah's, what, 90 years old, and Abraham's 100? And so anyways, uh, then, you know, Abraham prepares a meal for them, and, and all of this, you know, happens, and then they are leaving, right? And as they are leaving, see, at some point through here, it began to refer to one of those angels, not as angels, but as the Lord. If you'll notice, if you'll look here in your text, that's Lord, L-O-R-D, with all capital letters, that's how they did in the Old Testament, right? If you see Lord with only the L as capital and the rest are lowercase in the Old Testament, it's talking about Lord uh, like master or something like that. But if you see Lord with all caps, what they've done is they followed the tradition of the Jews and it, the word that they're translating there is Yahweh. 
right? So it's actually talking about when it's Lord with all caps in the Old Testament, it's talking about God. It's actually the proper name of God that is there, right? Or Yahweh, I guess it's right to say that's the proper name. But Yahweh, the name of God, that's who they're talking about there. But following... um, the Jews' tradition, they just translate it Lord, but they use all capital letters, so we'll know that. And so at this point, the two angels have went on towards Sodom and Gomorrah. If you will go on and pick up in chapter 19 and verse 1, and it says there came two angels to Sodom at even. Right? It's the two that has left Abraham. But there was three there at first. The third one we find out is Yahweh, is the, is the Lord God. And here we see it's like whenever they're getting ready to leave and, and, and you know, we think of it this way, of walking somebody to their car. It's almost like Abraham is walking them to their car. They didn't have a car, but he's, he, he, you know, he's kind of walking out the door with them and seeing them off. And the two angels go on down, right? They go on down to Sodom. And it's like the Lord hangs back to talk to Abraham for a minute. And he's, it's almost like he's saying to himself, is what the scripture says here, should I hide this thing from Abraham? And justifying why he's not going to hide this thing from Abraham. Verse 22. And the men turned their faces from thence, that's the two angels, and went toward Sodom. That's the same two angels you see in chapter 19, verse 1 that show up. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. That is the Lord God. Verse 23. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous? So it doesn't tell us, but we, we must infer from this, from what God was saying just a minute ago, that he has revealed to Abraham what his plan is and what he's getting ready to do. He's getting ready to, to, uh, to wipe Sodom and Gomorrah off of the face of the earth for, because of their sin. Right? For the same sin that is rampant in our own nation today. And this ain't what my sermon's about, but let me just say this for just real quick. I heard another preacher say this years ago, and it's true. I've repeated it often. If God does not judge this nation that we live in today for our sins, He'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. He ain't going to apologize for Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the point of that. He will judge this nation for our sins. Now let me go on here. And Abraham drew near, verse 23, And Abraham drew near and said, Will thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Preadventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Will thou also destroy and not spare the place for fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous shall be as the wicked, that be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Verse 26. And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. And Abraham answered and said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Preadventure, there shall lack five of the fifty righteous. Shall thou destroy all the city for a lack of five? And he said, If I find there forty and five, I will not destroy it. And he spake unto him yet again and said, Peradventure, there shall be forty found there. And he said, I'll not do it for forty's sake. And he said unto him, 
Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Peradventure, there shall thirty be found there. And he said, I'll not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Behold now, I've taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Peradventure, there shall be twenty found there. And he said, I'll not destroy it for twenty sake. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak yet but once. Peradventure, that, that means perhaps, all right? I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it means perhaps. He's saying perhaps there be ten. Peradventure, ten shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham. And Abraham returned unto his place. Let's pray together. Will you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we just humbly come before you one more time here tonight thanking you for the good day and for the many blessings. Thanking you for the opportunity you've given us to gather here tonight to worship you together. Thanking you, Lord, for the many blessings you poured out on us. Thanking you most of all for your son Jesus, Lord God, that you sent him and give him that we might have life and have that life eternally and abundantly. God, I pray that we wouldn't take that lightly and would not take that for granted. And Lord, I just pray tonight as we go forward, Lord, have your way in our midst. Bless each one that's made the effort to come out tonight. God, I pray that you'd lift them up. I pray that you'd encourage them. I pray, Lord, that you'd move amongst them. God, if there's anything in anyone here tonight's heart or life that doesn't please you or bring you glory, God, I pray, Lord, that you'd bring it to our attention. And Lord, that you wouldn't give us any peace until we'd repent of it. And get things right with you before it's everlasting too late. Lord, I'm asking just have your way and your will in our midst tonight. Let us continue to feel your presence in a mighty way. God, move strongly among us tonight. Oh God, turn us to you. Lord, just have your way and your will here. And Lord, let me ask, I, I need help tonight. Fill me full of your Holy Spirit. Anoint me from on high. Strengthen me here tonight. Give me the words that you'd have me to say. Lord, my desire is to do nothing but preach your message, your words. To be your messenger. That's what you've called me to be. So help me get out of the way and let you do that tonight. God, we love you. We worship you. We praise your holy name. And we ask it all in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. I've looked at this passage of scripture many times. And as I read this, um, not only what I've read to you and you're hearing tonight, but this whole section of Genesis. As I read this, there are three things that immediately come to mind. The first thing is that Sodom was a very wicked city. Matter of fact, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 13, and matter of fact, I think it's Genesis 13, 13, it specifically says that. The second thing that you notice in this is that Sodom deserved God's judgment. That's what I was trying to get at a minute ago when I stopped, is just as Sodom deserved God's judgment in their day, so does our society, our nation, 
our culture, so does it d deserve God's judgment today. And, and let me just say this. Don't fool yourself, right? God judges on three levels. God judges on a worldwide level, right? We see that judgment in Noah's time in the flood. That was a judgment on the sins of, for the sins of the whole world. We are going to see that level of judgment again at the second coming of Christ, except it won't be water this time, it'll be fire. So we see that God judges on a worldwide scale. God also judges, and this is usually the only way we think of it today, God also judges on the individual level, right? Each one of us will have to stand before God one day and be accountable, right? When it comes to our own soul, our own salvation. We'll have, to be, we'll have to answer for what we've done with Jesus, whether we accepted him or rejected him. And we will be judged on that basis and on that basis alone, and we will be accountable to God. But God also judges on a national level. You see, he judges on a worldwide level, he judges on a national level, and he judges on an individual level. And that national level, I think, is completely forgotten today. I really do. I think that we just think that, you know, we think about it on an individual basis, and that is it. Listen to me. God has been, on, been in the nation-judging business from the very beginning of time, and he will be up until the last moment when Christ comes back. And he'll judge, a, he'll judge a nation. And that's why the Bible talks about that it'll rain on the just and the unjust alike and the sun will shine on the just and the unjust alike. Don't you think for just a second, right, that, that oh, God won't let anything bad happen, right, to this country because there's too many Christians here or, or some silly nonsense like that. Listen to me. Whenever God's judgment come down on the nation of Israel, right, they stood by, by that same nonsense, that same uh, false hope and false belief, right? That's why in Jeremiah chapter 6, right, they would chant the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They thought because they were God's chosen people and they dwelt there in Jerusalem and there was the holy mount right in the temple that God would never let nothing happen to it because of, uh, because of you know, where it was no matter what they did. And boy, was they wrong. God used a heathen Nation with a wicked, idolatrous king to come and level the Temple Mount. And don't think for a second, oh, well, if there's a single righteous person there, that the judgment at the national level will be spared on that person. No. No. Because if you believe that, then you're going to have to answer me. What about the prophet Jeremiah? Surely, surely, you would agree with me that he was a righteous man. And yet judgment, and some bad things happened to Jeremiah too. Judgment come. Sodom was deserving of God's judgment. The third thing that's obvious to me in all of this is that Abraham had a lot of pull with God. As a matter of fact, it reminds me of James 5.16, our last part of that verse that says, The effectual fervent, effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. 
That's exactly what we see happening here. And although we are told another thing that fascinates me about all this is that we are told in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 26 that there came a time that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. This type of intercessory prayer of Abraham that I've read to you here of Abraham's is the first recorded prayer of this type in the Bible. I'm not saying this type of prayer didn't happen before, but this is the first one that's recorded. And you might say, now wait a minute, Abraham, right? He, he, he was talking to God like he was talking to a man, and, and, and what do you mean prayer? That's not what prayer is. I'm going to beg you to rethink what you think prayer is then. Prayer is simply talking to God. May I be so bold to say if you do it any other way, you might not be doing it right? <laughs> That's what prayer is. It's not a, there's not a secret formula. There's not an open sesame, uh, you know, type code or secret phrase or anything like that. Look, it is somebody who is right with God, who is sincere with God, with a sincere heart, wanting to commune with God, who is simply talking to God. That's what prayer is. And specifically, you hear that term. Now, I feel necessary to explain intercessory. That is not a word that was part of my vocabulary before I was a Christian. But it is one of them Bible words that I have learned since then. And what that means when somebody talks about intercessory prayer, we have an example of it with Abraham here. That is talking to God on someone else's behalf. That's your children being sick and you pleading with God on their behalf. That's somebody you care about and you pleading with God on their behalf. That's intercessory prayer. So, in this passage of scripture that I've read to you tonight, I noticed, I'm not saying I'm covering everything, not even close. But as the Lord brought this to my mind, I noticed four characteristics of this type of prayer, this type of praying, this intercessory praying that I think is important for us to see and recognize tonight. So here's the first one, and I think it might be the most important one. When you are praying for someone else, Right? That's intercessory prayer. You're praying on the behalf of someone else. When you're praying for someone when praying for someone else is done on the basis of your own personal relationship with God. What do I mean? First of all, Abraham was a child of God. God first spoke to Abraham, it tells us, in, the Ur, uh, in, in Ur of the Chaldees, right? Uh, and then he made a covenant with him. You can start reading about that, the last few verses of Genesis chapter 11 going into Genesis chapter 12. Later in Genesis chapter 15, God renewed that covenant uh, with Abraham. Both, uh, both writers in the New Testament, Paul and James, tells us that Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness, right? Abraham was truly a righteous man. So because of his close relationship with God, he was able to come 
to God and pray as he did. Listen to me. Have you ever thought about it this way before? How sad, and I know I've made this point before, how sad would it be to not even be able to pray for your loved ones? How sad would it be to mouth the words, but because of your relationship, or rather yet because of your lack of a relationship with God, you're unable for your prayers to go any farther than, than this ceiling. I've, I've given this example before, and if, it's to you, if it was to you, then you need to hear it again. <laughs> and if it was somewhere else, then it's about time I shared it with you. Um, I didn't get saved until I was 27. Um, it was shortly thereafter. John... Um, Jonathan Edwards, that's right, that's his name, right? From over at North Carolina or somewhere like that, running for president. 2008. Social media, Facebook, being able to instantly live, send messages and communicate that away through a social platform, new thing. First time they have always liked to watch debates and stuff like that. As time goes on, it gets harder and harder, but I still, I've, I've usually watched stuff like that especially back then. I'm a new Christian. I've only been Christian, what, a couple years? Presidential uh, Democratic primary is taking place. They have questions that come from people all over the world through Facebook. First time I've ever done anything like that. And the questions are directed directly to each one of the candidates. I know that there was at least four up there, maybe more than that, I don't remember. And the question goes to John Edwards about prayer. They wanted to know if he was elected president. I don't remember exactly how the question was worded, but essentially they wanted to know if he was elected president, if he would pray and seek God's guidance. And so they wanted to know, the question was something to the effect of how he felt about prayer, if he believed in the power of prayer. And his response His response was he didn't believe in prayer. And then he gave his reason why he didn't believe in prayer. He had apparently had had a young son. I got the impression it was teenage son. You can look it up later and you can give me the details if you want. But a young son, maybe teenage age or whatever, that had tragically died. I don't remember the circumstances. I don't remember if it was illness, car wreck, or what. I don't remember. But his son had died. And while his son, in the last you know, moments of his life, maybe it was his cancer or something, I don't remember, him and his wife had prayed and prayed. And it made no difference. Now, I don't know what God's will was, obviously, according to that, you know, for that young man and all that. But I can tell you this much. John Edwards' prayers didn't make it any farther than the ceiling of the room that he was in. And it didn't make it any farther. See, he blamed God. He said it was God's fault. You could see the bitterness in him and the anger, you know. And he, uh, he was obviously bitter and angry at God still, right? And he blamed God. But the fault was nobody's but his own. 
It was his own choices, his own life, and his lack of a relationship with God why he couldn't pray for his son that was dying. Now here's a man that I don't think ever really pretended to be a, a, a solid Christian, a church goer, or anything like that. But I'm not t- he's not listening to me tonight. I don't think. Maybe he gets the podcast. I doubt it. Uh, but you are, and you're listening to me tonight. And you do profess to be Christians. And you are here on a Sunday night. That means you've got to be pretty serious about it. How sad would it be in that moment of need when you need to pray for your parents or your children, or your grandchildren, or somebody, right? There is something, and you need to, uh, I mean, you fervently, in that moment, need to get a hold of God in their behalf. That's intercessory prayer. How sad would it be that you couldn't even do that because of where you had let your, that you'd let your relationship with God go? Or maybe you never had one and you just faked it all this time. Listen to me. The number one thing, my number one point, and I guess it's got to be in my mind right now, the most important one. Is praying for someone else is done on the basis, not of their relationship, but on the basis of your relationship with God. They might not even believe. That's all right. The, uh, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Right? That means if you're right with God, you've got pull with God. Your prayers make a difference. But you've got to be right with God. You've got to have a relationship with Him. Don't think that you can do nothing. And then all of a sudden when that moment hits, then all of a sudden... You can call on God and make all make uh, heavens and earth move. No, it don't work that way. Here's the second thing. Praying for others must be done in a spirit of humility. We see that. We see that through here. Even though Abraham is a man that's referred to as a friend of God, we see him approach God in humility. Well, like I said, it's true that Abraham had a good relationship with God and he was able to come into God's presence with boldness and confidence just as we should be able to too. He also came with fear and trembling. Did you notice in in verse 27 that Abraham actually refers to himself as nothing more than dust and ashes. He's lowering himself, right, to the lowest possible that he can, right? He's coming in humility. And then if you'll notice, each time he came to God again and again, he came with a spirit of humility. Abraham knew his place. His words and the way he approached God shows that. He knew that he was unworthy of the relationship that he had with God. And he did not behave like a spoiled brat. That's one thing that bothers me so much that is taught in the modern churches, right? You might call it the modern theology of prayer, right? The teaching, the study, uh, right, is is in so many, and and it's it's a false teaching. But it acts like we can just demand things of God. 
Like we can come at him like, like some spoiled brat. Listen to me, that's not it at all. We need to approach God in the, with the same humility that we see Abraham. Third thing that I noticed here was praying for others must be done in faith believing. Knowing that God hears and answers prayer. Now, now think about it. Think about the different sides, different aspects of this. First of all, there's, you've got to have your heart right with God. You've got to have a relationship with God. Then you can uh, boldly approach Him in confidence. But yet you've got to do it with a humble spirit and humility. And at the same time, though, that confidence is the faith believing, knowing that God hears and answers prayers. Now that doesn't mean that that God is your uh, that He's your magic genie, right? Like like rubbing that lamp and the genie comes out and says, "You got three wishes. What do you want?" That ain't God, and that ain't how it works. And that's why I said there ain't no magic phrase or special way you can go about it, and you can manipulate God to do whatever you want Him to do. No, the only things that will be done will be God's will, and you'll have to pray according to God's will. But when you're walking that close with God, aren't you kind of becoming one with Him, right? Shouldn't you be uh, striving after His heart and to have His heart, right, and to want the things that He wants? When His will becomes our will, that's when we can pray and it will be done. What a moving experience to read this passage and to see God's willingness to bend and even change His mind to the response of the prayers of one man. Now let me clarify for a minute. When I say that, I'm talking about, first of all, we know that God already knew what was going to happen. And we, and we already know, I mean, we know that God already, already determined what the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah is. He already knew what Abraham's approach was and what Abraham was going to say, what Abraham was going to ask for. But that in no way interferes with the freedom of, of Abraham's will, right? It, it, to, to sincerely desire this and to plead with God for this, right? And he's doing this really on behalf. His nephew Lot is there, right? And Lot's family, right? That's who he's interceding on behalf of. That's who he's praying for, right? That's who he is, he is trying to, to, he wants to see saved, right? In this situation. And so anyways, you've got to look at this from Abraham's perspective. Do you see what I'm saying? You, and from Abraham's perspective, he has talked God down from going to destroy the whole thing to if there's 50, then I'll not destroy it, to, okay, for the lack of five, right? So if there's only 45, if there's just 45 righteous, right? To, to 40, to 30, to 20, to 10. From Abraham's perspective, he is 
bringing God all the way down to 10. Now, God knew that, right? God could have went all the way to 5. You ever think about that? He could have went all There's only four that come out of there, and one of those four turned and looked back and turned it to a pillar of salt. It's kind of like, and I probably didn't do a good, good job explaining that part this morning. And that may be kind of what you were talking about. We'll find out Wednesday night, Dave. But just like what I preached on this morning, right? God knew what was going to happen. But from the Israelites' perspective, right, they, they, had the, they still had the freedom of will to choose to obey God or to disobey God. And sometimes I like to think about what didn't happen and what we know wasn't going to happen and God knew wasn't going to happen. But what if, that's kind of what I preached about this morning, what if they had obeyed and went in? Right? I think about that sometimes. What if Adam and Eve, right? We know the perfect will of God is that they wouldn't disobey him and they wouldn't sin and they wouldn't fall, right? You know, God's not creating a perfect human being and then another one from that one saying, boy, I hope that they, you know, screw up and fall. That's not what it is at all. God knew that they would, right? But that wasn't what the perfect, you know, God's perfect will was. I don't know if that's the right way to say that, but you understand what I'm saying tonight, right? And so sometimes I speculate, what if? What if Adam and Eve hadn't have uh, sinned and hadn't fallen from the garden? How would that have changed things, right? What if this morning, I was just kind of sharing with you, what if, what if the nation of Israel, instead of uh, having this unbelief, what if they believed God and said, yeah, we can do it with God on our side and go right on in, right? What if, I, I thought about this a lot. As a matter of fact, I've gotten some people kind of riled up just talking about it and kind of playing, as the saying goes, devil's advocate. But what if, what if? the Jews would have accepted Christ. I mean, we knew because his prophesied what would happen, but what if? They had, from their perspective, God didn't remove their, their, their free will, right? They had the freedom to accept him or reject him. And there was individuals that accepted him, but as a nation, they rejected him, and they were harshly judged because of it. But what if, as a nation... They would have accepted him. Hmm. What if? Abraham goes with God from 50 to 10. Can I tell you a story real quick? I didn't get saved. And I said this a minute ago. I was 27 before I got saved. I was not raised in church. I had a little bit, a tiny bit. I mean just a tiny bit around me. I can remember the first time I remember anything. My mom uh, explaining to me, you know, talking to me a little bit about heaven. It's the first time I remember hearing about any of it. And I wasn't very big. I was three or four. This was back when I, I remember I was standing in the seat of that, of that pickup, of dad's pickup, while we were driving up the road. I mean, that's just the way it was back then, you know. And that's how small I was. I, I had a grandma that went to church. I had an aunt that went to church. I can remember little bits and pieces here. There's a couple times or a small period in my life, you know. But really, when I got saved, I didn't know anything. I couldn't even told you that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John was the four Gospels. I mean, I just did not know much at all. Uh, before I got saved, after I got married, now my wife's a different story altogether. Uh, she got saved at a young age and Christian. And, and uh, anyways, 
whenever me and her had gotten married, or before we got married, really, I had a filthy mouth. And she was always on me to stop it, clean it up. It didn't really work, you know. I didn't want to. And maybe if I made her mad enough, I might watch my mouth for a few minutes, you know. Uh, after I got saved, it's amazing. God changed my want to. It made all the difference in the world. I wasn't doing it just to try to make Jennifer happy. I really wanted to, you know. made all the difference in the world. Another thing that I did, and I still had problems with it for a little while after I got saved, I don't know where I picked it up. I, maybe everybody used to say it. I don't know. Maybe it was just something my family said. I don't know. But I used to use the phrase all the time, Jew you, Jew you down. Right? Negotiate. When somebody's negotiating, going back and forth, you're haggling over a car price or you're selling a gun or, or whatever it is, you know, I'd always use the phrase like somebody, you know, they tried to Jew me down. Or I tried to, or I, you know, I got a good deal because I Jewed them down to whatever. And Jennifer would get so mad at me and get on to me and say, that is disrespectful. You shouldn't say that. Don't say that. There's a lot of other things you can say to mean the same thing. Don't say that. And I, uh, I don't know, I tried about like I tried to clean up my mouth. And then after I got saved, I understood more why, you know, I should probably be more respectful and why that might be, you know. And, and, and so I, I worked on it more. Something else that happened when I got saved was God put a hunger in me, a fire to read his word. And I sat down and just started reading like I never read before. And when I got to Genesis chapter 18, I said, here it is. Here's where it come from. Abraham chewed God down all the way from 50 to 10. She didn't like that at all. That's what he did. Probably shouldn't call it that. Praying for others must be done in faith, believing, knowing that God hears and answers prayers. One last thing, and I've already kind of talked about it something. Praying for others. Can I get a lot more personal here? Praying for loved ones. Maybe you got a loved one that's deep in sin. Maybe you got a loved one that's away from God and you know it and everybody else knows it. And you got a burden for them and you're praying for them. Praying for loved ones must be done with persistence. I mean, that's what I was just getting at whenever I was talking about how Abraham did God there, right? I mean, so Abraham came to God not just once, not just twice, but if you count that, it is six times when he works him down from 50 to 10. And he is pleading, in a sense, he's pleading his case with God to spare Sodom for Lot's sake. And he didn't just ask once and let it go. That's another one of them things that goes around that is just, that's not right. Right? A thing that goes around that's taught sometimes in churches and to Christians and stuff like that is if you're really praying in faith, believing, you'll just ask one time, you'll just say one time, and you'll believe it's done and go on. 
That is not what the Bible teaches us at all. The Bible teaches us to be persistent, right? Not just to ask once and then let it go, right? He stayed after him to the point that he thought he was actually annoying God and even afraid that he might be angering God. And that is actually exactly uh, how he was praying was the way that Jesus taught us to pray. If you don't believe me, go read Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 1, the persistent widow. The truth is, is we give up way too soon in our praying. So, let me just ask you this and we'll close out. When was the last time that you were so burdened for someone? I don't know what the right phrase to use here. I started, to, I started to say that you tried to bargain with God. But I don't want you to get the idea that you can make deals with God because you can't make deals with God. Right? Uh, you can't, and we do this. I, look, I'd done this uh, around the time when God was dealing with me and stuff. And I would say, God, if you'll do this, then I'll do that. Right? That's making a deal with God. That's bargaining in a sense with God. And that's not what I mean. That ain't right. I don't think you can. You should do that, can do that. I don't think the Bible ever teaches that that's all right. I know that there are stories and there are times where people do things like that. But I'm talking about what Abraham did here with God. When's the last time that you were so overcome with grief and sorrow that you come to God and begged him to change his mind, begged him to move things in another direction. When was the last time that you stayed on your knees and begged God to spare someone? When was the last time that you, that you got on your knees and you stayed there until you know you got through heaven and you persistently kept praying after that even, right, uh, for God to save someone? When was the last time that you did that for God to protect someone, to bring someone home? Church, we are weak today, and we are weak today because our prayer life is weak and we have forgotten how to be persistent with prayer plumb to the point that some of our brethren even teaches that you should not be persistent in your prayer I'm asking you it's sincere heart to heart God knows the truth and that's who you need to talk to about it but when's the last time when's the last time that you were so burdened for someone so grieved so full of sorrow that you, were, that you would come and humble yourself before God and humble yourself before God repeatedly and beg God, beg God for that person's soul, for their safety, for them to come home, for their healing, whatever it is. When's the last time? Jennifer is coming for a song of invitation. I'm going to ask you to stand. And I'm going to open the altar and I'm going to give you an opportunity to come. If the Spirit of God is dealing with you tonight, if you've got a need, if you've got a heavy burden, 
God put somebody on your heart speaking to you about somebody, I'm begging you, would you come tonight? Listen to me. Don't worry what other people think. It don't matter what they think. The only thing that matters is what God thinks. Come on, church. Would you come and pray tonight? When's the last time you had a burden for somebody? Such a strong burden, you're willing to step out and come and beg God. Come on, church. Would you come pray tonight? Don't miss this opportunity. Spirit of God dealing with you, would you come tonight? Hallelujah. Glory to the Lamb of God. Praise His holy name. Would you come tonight? Would you come?